Today, sales teams are more distributed, moving faster than ever before. But most enablement and training is slow to build, hard to change, and often doesn't drive results. So the good folks over at Lessonly built a powerfully simple enablement solution to help sales teams like yours ramp 50% faster, continuously improve, and close up to 75% more deals. Lessonly empowers leaders to quickly create, update, and share branded bite-sized lessons that reps will actually take on any device. Make enablement and feedback personalized to each rep. Quickly identify skills gaps, provide specific coaching, recognize great performance, and get back to revenue-driving activities faster. Check out Lessonly.com, L-E-S-S-O-N-L-Y.com. If you're in sales, check this one out. This episode is brought to you by Spiff. Want real-time transparency and visibility into your commission plans? No more payout questions, miscalculations, or hours spent on commission reports or disputes. Automate commissions with Spiff and stay motivated, not distracted. Go to spiff.com forward slash Colin to get started today. That's spiff.com forward slash Colin. And now back to the episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Colin Cadmus podcast. This is episode number seven. And today I am joined with the one and only Jason Lemkin. Jason graduated from Harvard University and Berkeley Law. He started his career as a corporate counsel and then transitioned into various technology leadership roles, eventually leading him to co-founding EchoSign, which was later acquired by Adobe. Jason then founded Saster, a social community of over 500,000 SaaS founders and executives and over 3 million content views each month. If you haven't discovered it already, check out saster.com. It's loaded with content and resources that's great for anyone in SaaS. Jason also co-authored the book From Impossible to Inevitable with Aaron Ross. Uh, I could go on all day listing all of his accomplishments, but instead, let's hear about it all firsthand from the man himself. I want to dive into, obviously, your experience building EcoSign or EchoSign. Sorry, I, yep. I realized I said it wrong on Brendan's episode a million times, and now I finally it got it. It used to happen Echo back Sign. in the day, but uh, yeah, now that the brand's disappeared, it's less often. But yeah, It's one of those things I think I've just always read it and never heard it, so I have been yeah. saying it wrong for years. But uh, <laughs> anyhow, I want to I dive into that, but before we do that, can you give the audience I guess a quick overview of you know your career leading up to that, right? You, you're highly educated. You spent a lot of time in school. Um, you know, what were your thoughts going through school? What did you plan to do? And and kind of what were the series of events that led you, you know, to technology uh, leadership? Well, look, I, I things have changed so much. In fact, they've changed so much, not just since we sold Equison Adobe Sign in 2011, which is now two, it's two generations ago. It's changed so much even since. 2015, 2016, when we met, uh, it's cloud is so big and so much has changed we can chat about. But, you know, if, if it's helpful to, to learn about one somewhat successful person's thread, for me, like for what it's worth, everything I did was, was uh, I, I, you know, was not, not really intentional, um, not accidental, but not intentional. Um, you know, I came originally, you know, a while back, but back actually when I was briefly a startup attorney working for startups like Yahoo and others, and they were small, but I just wanted to be, I wanted to be part of tech. I wanted to work with founders. I never thought, maybe the biggest learning that's so different to today, but maybe not that different from what a lot of people go through today is I never thought I was good enough to be a founder. It never occurred to me I could be a founder. Um, so I started working with startups. I loved it. It was just my blood. You know, I was a programmer when I was a kid and it's what I want to do. So I came to Silicon Valley, like many of us have done, got to work with startups, joined one of my clients. Two weeks later, we were acquired for a billion dollars. It was a crazy ride. I won't get into all the details. Um, ultimately, the company that acquired us went bankrupt. So I went in two weeks from having eight figures of gains to $50,000. Um, one of those classic older, older internet stories. It's less common. It doesn't really happen in SaaS and cloud. Um, 
And then uh, I went and joined a startup as often we did that, that had raised tons of money. It looked really hot. And I got there as a total dog. It was a total dog. It, uh, I got there and the third week there, I went with the CEO to visit our top two customers. Both of them canceled the contracts the third week. So we oh, went no. from, and one of them was going to lead the next round. So we lost 40 million in customer contracts, we went from 40 million to zero, and we lost a $50 million Series seed investment. So we had no revenue and no money left. Wow. That was my third week in the job. But maybe the one of the learnings is it looked great on the outside. So it's so hard to do your diligence, right? Yeah. Uh, and the yeah. board was fabulous and the investors were fancy. Um, you see a lot that of a lot there. too. What's you that? Know, like, I feel like that happens a lot, right? The due diligence is like, no matter how deep you go, I've always said, I don't think that they learn quite as much as they do in the first month after the acquisition. Yeah. The single best, actually, due diligence question I ever got from a VC when I was a founder, I sat with a, a well-known VC at the time. He's since retired. We had breakfast and he said, okay, Jason, I really have one final question for you. And it's like, what? What's, what are the, what are, what's the top thing I'm going to learn at the first board meeting I don't know now? <laughs> <laughs> That's the question to ask. On the other side, yes. yeah. It's yes. the best question. It's the best question. Because um, obviously you're not volunteering the worst, right? Yeah, like if you don't ask, what founder is going to tell you? Yeah. And then maybe just two learnings we could touch on if you want to go in the early days. So after that, I joined this startup that had raised all this money. Um, and it, it was devastating. There's some funny stories around it I won't share. But ultimately, I realized it was gonna, gonna, not going to make it in its current form, but, but never quit, right? So I, I, we, grabbed, we grabbed a little bit of technology off the shelf. I grabbed a co-founder. We, we spun out a company out of that company. We sold it for $50 million after 12 months. Um, so I won't go into all the deals. But the lesson is just never, never frigging quit, right? Um, and, but the meta lesson isn't really that when I think back, so we sold that company for 50 million after 12 months and we had huge challenges ahead of us, right? We had not built up 10 million of recurring revenue with 140% NRR. We had huge challenges and my co-founder and I, she and I, we never look back. We always say, look, selling for 50 million after 12 months, when we had a decade of work to do and massive risk, uh, greatest, greatest decision on my mind. Fast forward to Adobe sign, Echo sign. I mean, even before the acquisition closed, I knew it was an error. I knew it was an error because as between signing and closing the deal, we crossed 10 million in ARR with 120, really 140% in bigger accounts, 120% NRR, and we were cash flow positive. So back in those days, eight years ago, nine years ago, we didn't fully understand what it meant that recurring revenue occurs. It sounds funny today, but even when Box IPO'd, Wall Street made fun of SaaS companies five years ago. This revenue isn't real. It's going to fail. But the number one lesson is this friggin' revenue recurs for decades. Yeah. And I knew I didn't get this until I had the clarity of mind. It's so hard running a company between signing and closing when I had a mental break and I'm like, frack, if I take 10 million at 120% NRR and we don't even, and I have Brendan, but we don't even crush it in sales and marketing. We don't even do any marketing, just draw a line. We will yeah. get to yeah. hundred million. And I've seen this now with so many investments and other companies I've done, they get to, that's, that's why our original title, remember from our first SAS event was impossible, inevitable, right? Zero to one is impossible. One to 10 is unlikely, but 10 to hundred, if you're committed and you have happy customers and you have positive NR, it's, it's, it's inevitable, right? It's inevitable. Right. And that, that is the, that's kind of the lesson that, that spawns Saster, which is, can we share this playbook so that people realize if they get their company to a certain level, um, they can do it. They can go big, right? And and there were no unicorns really when we started Saster, and now there's 500 in SaaS and cloud. So it is you can do it, right? And and yeah, that's 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 maybe one slice of the lesson, which is if you if you if you have something in SaaS and cloud, multiples will come and go. 
But if you have that 120% or north net revenue retention, or maybe 105 and with SMBs, and yeah, and you have a good team, like settle in for decades, settle in for decades because it can go forever. It can go forever. Yeah, hindsight. Right, we've seen companies like Mailchimp, right? Twenty Years, Zendesk, and others. They're all all those companies are crossing a billion in ARR today. All of them, all of them at a billion. All, not just some yeah. of them, all of them. And they're all going to hit five to eight billion, and almost all of them are going to hit ten billion in ARR. It's crazy the power of, of recurring revenue. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I've been getting into finance and and investing lately, and I sort of had the same epiphany with compounding interest. Right. And, and you, you know, I didn't realize as a, as a young guy, like if I put that money away and you just let it run its course, like it just yeah. grows and it's, it's recurring crazy. revenue is even more powerful than more. Than it doesn't because it doesn't grow at 1% like cash does no, or even, just, just or even, or even, month. you know, 15 to 20%, 8% like NASDAQ historically has until recently, it can grow like crazy. It can yeah. like grow crazy yeah. in tech, crazy yeah. in tech, right? So you would have held on to it now in, in hindsight, huh? Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think about, I only think about it two or three times a day. <laughs> only. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, but at least it is, it is haunting. Um, but at least, at least it's, it's, it's given me the understanding of how it works, right? I had a founder I invested in who not that long ago had an offer to, to buy his company for a little over a billion dollars. Um, and the amount of money that the founders would have made, they, they had sold very few shares. Um, they'd only been through one round, really. It's very it's crazy. Tempting. Yeah. And, 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 and the founder called me up and said, what should I do? It's like, my investors think I should take this offer. I'm like, oh, don't sell. <laughs> this, was, this is so much money. But I knew the numbers. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, you're you're only at forty million ARR, and so a billion is a huge multiple, right? But you're grow not only you're growing like a weed, but your customer you have like one hundred and forty percent net revenue retention, and you're burning nothing. Like just go all in. Like life is short, right? Life is short on this stuff. Is it a hundred times harder for him to accept that reality than it is for you to give that advice? No. At the end, he said, "Yeah, that I just needed one person to remind me I'm not doing it." Wow, that's impressive. I don't know if I would be that easy on that. A billion dollars is. Uh... I know, but if you, right. the thing is in SaaS at a certain point, and this is why I knew between that signing and closing, right? At a certain point, you know, you know the risks, you know the stability, you know it. And like, you can see 12 months out so easily in SaaS after a certain point. Like, you know, if you're ahead of sales, like you're, you're like, this, let's say you ended this year at 10 million, right? And the CEO says, I want to do 25, okay? Right. If, if the customers are happy, it's not like you might end the year at 11. <laughs> Right, you and the right. CR are going to be debating whether you end the year at 18 or 20 or 22 or 24. And, and you might even lose your job as a head of sales for not hitting that crazy number, but you're not going to grow zero, right? right you have right, so much yeah. visibility in SaaS past a certain point if you keep investing in it that, that you know and that you can have the confidence to say, look, yeah, if I pass this, pass up this incredible MA offer, which makes no logical sense, right, by any historical standards, but I can say, look, in two years, I'll be back, right? And, and Aaron Levy has the famous story. And, and you know, Box has had a tough time, right? But when Aaron Levy passed on the Citrix deal at six to 800 million, he's like, it might be three or four years until I get back there. And mm. it's been longer, but you know, he's got a $3 billion company today, right? It'll be worth right. more. So, right. and, and so that's one of the crazy things is settling in for a couple decades in SaaS. And I, I found that founders today are more comfortable doing that. They get it. We, we've seen the roadmap, right? Back when I started, there was only Salesforce, right? And I'm right. like, well, They've I can't be as stories. good as Salesforce. I can't do that good. So who's my role model? Now we have a hundred role models. Well, pick your, is your role model Asana? Is, is your role model Reich that just got acquired for 2 billion? Is your role model Atlassian, which is worth 50? Just pick your role model or your comp and just be like almost as good as them. 
Like you don't have to be as good as Atlassian anymore to do well. Like just just come up, just come close, <laughs> and you can have a unicorn. That's the crazy thing about today. If you just come close to a leader, you can build a unicorn, which is just. You know, we couldn't even see this a, a few years ago, right? Um, I remember when we started Saster, one of the early posts was Everybody Lies, and it listed the revenue for a bunch of cloud leaders. And then HubSpot at the time, I think, was at $30 million in error or something like that, which seemed like a lot. And then they IPO'd in, what, 2016? And when HubSpot IPO'd, they're worth $750 million. But today, they're worth $16 billion. Wow. Yeah. So you just got to keep you That's have to think I can see why I mean for a million reasons but ha- if I were a founder you know having this type of conversation with you would be really important to me every every once in a while I think to to sort of you know level check a little bit cuz I think if you get you get as a founder you can get so buried in the stress and the anxiety that you get that offer for that acquisition you can it, it's blinding right there's one answer to all of this though which is the number one advice I give to all. It's number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. Like it, you do get buried, right? And the, the bigger issue for founders is that you get tired. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and you see so many CEOs sell their company after four or five or six years because that's when the grind just wears you to the ground. And the answer They probably always, just needed a vacation, right? Like a nice month off. <laughs> you need a vacation. And I wrote that years ago in the early days, like before you quit or, or before you quit a CEO, take, yeah. take two weeks off and, 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 and do no work for two weeks. But, and that still is true. That's the advice I give everybody. But the real answer, which we knew before is, is you got to hire better VPs. You got to hire an executive. And once you cross certain levels, like say 10 million, you have to start making yourself obsolete each year. You cannot survive as CEO, still being the VP of sales, still being the VP of marketing, still, especially I see this way too often, still being the VP of product. No, you cannot, you cannot guess your product gets too complicated at five, $10 million. I'm sure you saw this at Aircall. Aircall in the early days was, was a simple product, right? And it still seems simple on the outside, but as the years go by, the number of features, the number of integrations, the number of workflows, it's so complicated. Piles up. Can't be the VP of product that the company will fall apart. So you've got to, as CEO, you have to take. 20 to 30% of your job each year and make, make yourself obsolete, get yourself out of there. And the best way is to fi- find one great VP. That's the easy way to do it, right? And just stop being a VP of something every year. You got to do it. Yeah. It's really interesting, you know, hearing you say this, because I think back to my experience at Aircall and Ollie, the CEO, is actually really, really good at that. Uh, and it was a learning experience for me because this was a much bigger startup than I had worked at before, right? They had been through some some bigger growth. They're also international, so just a lot more employees and customers. Um, but but he was really good at being extremely hands off, and it was a big shift of pace for me. And I remember my first ninety days. You know, a big focus is like getting to know the CEO and what our working relationship and and sort of uh, cadence is going to look like. Right. Yep. And I remember he, he sat me down at one point in my, my second month or something. We're doing my 60 day, you know, check in sort of. Uh, and, he, and he's like, he's like, you know, that uh, he's like, I, you know, I'm always here to help you and give you my thoughts. But you ask me for a lot of them. And I'm like, would you prefer <laughs> me to just do things? And he's like, yeah, of course, you're a VP of sales. I'm like, okay. And, and one thing about me, and I remember getting this compliment from him in every review, review, when you tell me something like that, and you gave me some, some advice before we got on this call, like I take those things very seriously. And I will spend an hour at least tonight thinking about the advice you gave me. And I do the same thing with him. And so then I implement real change. And, and, and that was something, I think that was a strength for me that he really liked about me. But anyway, you know, what my point is, is, uh, he was really good at that. And, and I think that was a huge key to how they were able to grow so fast, to your point, 
uh, is yep. that he really never, and part of it is natural for him. He had no desire to do those jobs. And that's why he's actually really great to be a CEO because he'd much rather focus on finding the best person to do it. Um, whereas I think some founders, they start out doing everything themselves, which was really not how that company was built. So he sort of had that DNA from the start to always find the talent, right? He comes from a consulting background. So he was not the guy who was going to do the work. He was the facilitator. Uh, and, and that worked really, really well for them. Yeah, there's a related point. Um, I think for folks that might listen to this, there might be a lot of potential VPs and VPs to be. Um, a thing I've learned is you just said when you started there, you spent a lot of time with the CEO the first 60 days, right? Really getting to know each other. Yeah. That's, that's the way it happens 95 times out of 100, right? I've learned it's a mistake. Interesting. What I like to do today when I'm helping portfolio companies or other CEOs recruit, here's what I like to do. I like to get, this is, it's important. Important for all, all VPs. Uh, sales and marketing might be the most important. For all. I like to get them all the way to the offer letter stage. Okay. And I like the CEO to have signed the offer letter. But before it gets countersigned, I ask them to spend a half day as a working session. Okay. You've got the offer. Okay. Colin, it's yours. Okay. Now let's talk about what we're really going to do the first 90 days. Let's, and if you're, and uh, what I especially love with uh, a head of sales is really look at the existing pipe. Okay, because in the first 90 days, unless you're ultra high velocity, you're gonna have to work with what you have. Yeah. So what are we really gonna get done? What deals are in flight? Who are you gonna hire? Who are we really gonna hire? How are we gonna get those hires done? And really do not just do the 60 to 90 day plan you do to get hired, okay, and look smart and have a, a but actually do a work for a half day. And and sometimes at the end of that half day, 15% of the time, the the candidates like this is not this is not the right fit for me. Right. And it doesn't mean they're not great because we wouldn't let it get that far. And they have right. the sign. They, they have a last chance to pull the ripcord. Um, and no one does this extra meeting between signing and starting. Right. And, 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 and I, I, my rule to the CEOs is you're not allowed to change your mind. <laughs> oh, so only they the can't candidate. back out of the, the offer. That, it's, it's a quiet thing. I only tell this to the candidate. I tell them, I tell them the worst things happen is when two folks get married and they're great. Yeah, but they shouldn't be together, right? Yeah. You're a great VP, but there's uh, going back to what we chatted about earlier. There's only so much diligence you can do, right? Yeah. And it's easier the CEO can do more diligence than the VP. The VP can talk to everyone. They can do Google. They can do this. But at the end of the day, there's only it's hard for them to do perfect diligence. Hopefully, they're listening to Gong on chorus calls. Please do that. Not enough people do that before they take a job. Spend hours listening to all to all of it. Um, but VP I wanted saying, to get right? them another chance to make sure that this is a place they feel they can thrive for several years. So they need that extra session that you never quite get in the recruiting session. And it shouldn't happen after you start, right? It's too risky, right? Yeah. It's too risky. Because listen, you had a CEO that loved to be hands-off in sales, right? But that's not true of all CEOs. Some CEOs, especially right. that are good at enterprise sales, they want to be in the deals, right? And then a lot of CEOs that are good at marketing want to be very involved in marketing strategy, right? And I find so many so many sales folks fail because there's disalignment on what to do in the beginning, even though they're great. And so many marketers fail because they want to execute a marketing playbook that the CEO doesn't believe in. Yep. Okay. The marketer is like, okay, I want to do social. I want to do paid. I want to do... Gartner, I wanted whatever it is. And the CEO's no, look, I know you, I know you worked at wherever and Slack, but that's not the way it works here. Yeah, it's different Son. here, right? Okay, yeah. let me tell you what, what I need is this type of dimension. I need this is working and I just want more of it. And then I see these the heads of marketing just flame out in new roles because they they want to do their playbook, but not what the CEO wants. So they don't do this working session either, right? And so yeah, this is in today's world, 
there's there's so many more veterans today, right? There's SaaS companies are, are they go through phase transitions and folks leave and they move on or they, the directors want VP gigs or the, the right VP at 5 million is not the right one at 50 million. And there's so many great folks you can meet, but do this last step after the offer letter. So the candidate does not feel like they have to oversell you, right? Do it. And mag- magic comes of it. That's brilliant. We, we, um, I did that once with an SDR. Um, we, we got a little experimental. Uh, so you're reminding me of that story. We were, we had this guy come in for an interview and we were so tossed up, you know, it was one of those interviews, like this guy's either going to be the best SDR we ever hire, or he's going to be the biggest pain in the neck. Yep. Right. And, and usually from my history, I'm like, those are usually probably the best hires. They might also be the worst, but like, those are the ones I'm most excited to hire. Cause there's a lot of potential, but we were, there was, there was a lot of disagreement in, across the hiring teams. Anyway, we said, come in, let's bring them in for, for a half a day or a couple hours, or whatever. Let's, let's get them into the training and let's just sort of start the first day and see how it goes. And we, you know, explained it to him the same way. This is a chance for you to make sure this is the right place for you. Uh, yep. Make sure you enjoy it, get a feel of what it's like to not be interviewing here, but to be working here. And so we brought this guy out. His name is Phil Nizvetsky. He's all over LinkedIn. Uh, and the man, right? A guy comes in and this is an intimidating thing to walk into. He's coming straight out of college onto a sales floor, a bunch of people making noise, making sales. We sit him right down and I'm hands off. I, I paired him up with an AE. I said, teach him, you know, this process, da, 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 have him make some cold calls and let's just see what happens. He had done some cold calling in an internship. So he kind of knew what he, how to do the calls. And he comes in and he's cranking through. And this is not an easy product to sell over a cold call, right? A phone system. Like this is a long process to get someone in the door. And, you know, he's bumping his head up against the wall, but I love his energy and he's learning. He's taking the coaching. So we already know we're going to hire this guy. Right. And I said, Hey man, you got the job. Like great, great stuff. You'll start on Monday. He goes, I can't leave yet. I go, what do you mean? Because I didn't book a meeting. He goes, you came here for me to book a meeting. If you don't mind, I don't want to leave until I do that. I'm like, we'll go right ahead. Right. <laughs> and uh, sure enough, within an hour, he booked a meeting. Um, you know, he called some people he knew might be interested, but it was a legitimate prospect and then he booked it. And so anyway, long story, well, long story long, he turned out to be our top SDR and, and now a top AE. Yeah, it's good. You did that one. Um, the, the, the slight difference is you can take more of a risk on an SDR and AE because there's more of them. You yes. can say, look, that high beta person is either going to be great or flame out and still do that practice day. But if she's not there in six months, it's okay. If your VP yeah. doesn't work out in six months, you could be behind setback for, ye- for years. For, you could for lose years, half your team right? if, they, if they liked her, right? Yeah. And um, so, but yeah, I'm with you. I'm, I'm with you. That's, that's great that's advice good. though. Because I think people are looking for tactics, right? On how to hire the right VP. I, I know that's probably, I don't know if you break down your web traffic, but I bet there's a big big chunk of that pie chart that's going for how to hire a VP on, on Saster, right? Re- reading all that content. It's still true. It, it's evolved over the years, but it, it is still true that like the number one question founders have just as they hit traction is how the hell do I find this magical VP of sales, right? That's part of the fun of the early days of Saster that you'll remember. Yeah. Um, people understand this better than they did back then when it really seemed like a, a, a almost a sorcerer type position. Um, but yeah, it's still, it's still number one. It's still the number one angst and, and founders, fewer founders than in the old days, but founders continue to make the mistake that they think a VP of sales is going to solve their problems, right? What a VP of sales is going to do is, is let you continue your growth and tilt it. Right. But they're Can not you repeat that one more time. Yes. A VP of sales is going to do 
one or both things. Like they're going to let you, if you're growing very quickly, they're going to let you maintain that growth because founder led sales is always going to break down after two A's or three A's or four A's. So if you don't hire a VP of sales, even if you're growing like a a rocket, your growth will always plateau somewhere between four and 12 ARR, depending on how quickly you're growing without a VP of sales. So job one is just feed the engine, hire great. It's really ultimately hiring great people and putting systems and processes in place. Um, if you don't do that and you're growing quickly, you'll fail. If you're growing more moderately, let's make up a number 60%, right? What a VP of sales can do is help you grow 80% or 90%. And that in SaaS, we talked about compounding, the difference between growing 60% a year and 80% or 90 or 100, it's profound over four or five years, right? But what a VP of sales can't do is take a company that's not growing and magically create growth. A, yeah. a VP of sales can't take a company that's growing 10% a year and turn it into a unicorn, right? That's not her job. That's not their job. Their job is to take what works with two AEs or even one and a half AEs sometimes and make it work with 10 and actually make it work better. Make it work better by spending every day working on this and every hour driving down sales cycles just by talking to customers more and driving deal size up by not being scared to break deals and just basic stuff, but not to create sales out of an environment with no product market fit or leads, right? And that's, uh, that's, that's still... Most founders aren't looking for a VP of sales today too early because they, they don't feel like they can afford it. But they, but too many people are looking for a magician, right? There is no magician. Yes, yes, yeah. I always say like salespeople don't create demand, right? We convert demand, um, and you know I think there's there's and 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 I know that's debatable because people say well outbound sales is creating demand. I and I I argue against that. So they're not actually creating it. What they're doing is is they're contacting it. They're creating the awareness. But the demand it really falls back on the marketing team. If an SDR is reaching out to them, you know they're creating that awareness. They might be getting that prospect to check out the company, to go to the website. But then at that point, the hands are really in the marketing team, the messaging on the website, the collateral, whatever they, they research your reputation. They're going to do that stuff before they respond to that SDR. And, and that's where I say the marketing they team. Are. If and the marketing team has done shame. a good job creating that demand, then they can respond to the SDR. It is. And, and it varies a little bit the more enterprise you get. Yes. But there's sort of two important learnings I've taken away from that. One is it's a shame. It's a shame. It's a shame for everyone if you hire your VP of sales before your VP of marketing. Yes. Um, Just had this conversation this yeah. morning with This was with one of the VP earliest of posts in Sastra where I wrote, I hired my VP of marketing at 20K and MRR. It wasn't a, a, a week too late. And people people's jaws dropped back in the day. But I still see this. Mis- I see this mistake being made as much now as when I wrote that post seven, 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 seven years ago. And, and maybe it's because today cloud is bigger. So that early demand you get, that early quirky organic demand you get from a blog post or a partnership, like some, there's more of that in the old days. Yeah. So you can get a little further without anyone in marketing than in the old days because cloud is bigger. But God, if you don't arm the sales team with, 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 with help when they start, what's the, what's the point, right? It, it's, it's a waste of doing it. And so that's the number one mistake I see is, is missequencing this. Or sometimes today, it's actually more common in the old days, is letting a v- VP of sales sit for six, nine, 12 months without a VP of marketing. A VP, not, not some little, some person with two years of experience, but yeah. without someone with a commit to sales. The, 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 most, the highest function organization is when marketing has a commit to sales. And it doesn't really matter what the commit is, whether it's opportunities. I don't like revenue, but it could be MQLs or MQOs or SQOs or S. I really don't care whether it's even raw leads. Everyone hates it, but I don't care as long as it's a freaking commit. It's a number, right? Or something. Start a with number something. and a number that progresses in the year, ideally even faster than revenue. Then, then magic always happens. And I see way too many companies 
with they, they finally find a VP of sales and there's no one in marketing that can own a commit for six or 12 months and you're just undermining the efficacy or the, the performance of your sales team. Now, the flip side yeah. is the other big mistake that, that I am shocked still happens today. Maybe I'm not shocked is um, there's, you know, founders get in their mind, they have to hire a VP of sales, right? And they finally find someone and um, there's no improvement in 90 days. And I wrote this post early in SaaS or the early days, like, you know, if, if VP, VP of sales doesn't, doesn't make a difference in 30 days, they never will. They'll never work out. And people hated this post, but, and, 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 and all the head of sales hated it. And then they thought about it later. They're like, you're right. They're, you're right. I, you're I was right. one of those. Yeah. You hated and, it. And you I, hated it. And then I thought more about it over time. And, and even just thinking more about it now, as you're repeating it, I'm remembering back to, to reading that. Um, yeah, I did hate it because my perception was, you really can't have much visible change in that amount of time. You're working on things for the long haul, da, 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 da. But, you know, then, then when you really think about it, and, and I went into air call, I'll tell you, with a very different strategy um, around this type of lesson. And, and it's that you can't go in just thinking about the long term. You have to go in with sort of two different missions. And this is how I went into air call. I went in and, and I will give a lot of credit to my CEO because he actually guided me uh, down this path, which is he, he wanted me to come up with, quick wins, a list of quick wins. This is the first one-on-one I had with him. He said, in our next one-on-one, I want you to give me a list of quick wins that you are going to accomplish in the first 90 days. Then I also want to see an outline high level of what you want to do in the first six months, right? So he, he was getting me to think about how do you get some quick wins now? Win over some respect from the team. Just show some improvement. Do something. It doesn't have to yeah. be a major milestone, right? But just show that you're getting some stuff done. Uh, and I, and I did that and I don't know if I would have without him guiding me, I would have probably thought more long-term and focused more on that. Cause in my head, you're kind of just thinking about, you know, the long-term sustainability of the business, but to your point and to his point, there's a perception factor, right? You have perception of your founders, of your team, of your investors. And if you get those quick wins in actually earn their respect, everything else becomes a lot easier. It does. And And I I see a hundred percent failure rate when three months in the CEO is like, well, you know, Jason's going to do great as a VP sales. We don't, we're not seeing in the numbers yet, uh, but the pipeline's looking great. I've just 0% of the time have I ever seen that be a success. It's, it's proving it to the team. It's proving it to the CEO. Um, And it's also um, just a fact that no matter what situation, assuming there are leads, going back to the question, you know, arm your VP of sales with a VP of marketing before they start. Assuming there's anything in flight, any opportunities in flight, if you hire anyone good and they spend 50 hours a week working those deals instead of the 10 hours the CEO has, more of them are going to close. Just yeah. that. Just think about that for a minute. There, let's say there's only 10 deals in flight and you join as a VP of sales. That, that's not great. You wish you had 100 opportunities walking in the door, but it's for not sure. zero. Let's say you walk in at 10. I bet you three of them the CEO has never even talked to. Okay. Two of the 10, there's some junior AE that doesn't quite know what they're doing. Okay. And five are sort of okay. What happens if you take those two and you just call the two the CEO forgot about or got too busy? You guide the the, the AE that's really out of their element, right? And you coach the other five. Let's say two of those were going to close in the first 90 days. Now four will. It's just that simple. It's just by 40, 50 hours a week helping the deals in flight. That alone is going to get you 20 to 30% more revenue out of those 10 opportunities, right? Yeah. Just, just by increasing the odds that they close, right? Then because you're in them, they're going to close a little bit faster because the CEO got distracted and forgot. So they're going to close. Right. So you're going to get 20% more revenue and then they're going to close 20% faster, right? And then a couple of them, you're going to ask, you know, 
I know, I know you said you needed 10 seats, but how many folks are at? Oh, there's a hundred. What if we start with 25 seats? And so you just drive up the deal size a little bit. And these are all deals in flight. This is not outbound or anything. That's right. why there's always magic in the beginning. Even if the deal size is high, there's always magic. And the mediocre VPs of sales, the so folks that are double stretches, another classic SaaS for they don't get it. They don't get the impact they can have on the, on the opportunities that are there the day they walk in there. They don't get it. They don't get it. And they fail. They fail, yeah. right? A, a great VP of sales knows there's going to be one call closes. A great VP of sales knows there's going to be easy deals as well as hard deals. A great VP of sales knows that doesn't mean they're not a great VP of sales. They have to have a different playbook for different things. And a great VP of sales knows that if I walk in with 10 opportunities, I got to quickly figure out which are the good ones and throw some friggin' energy at those ones. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, the quick no, ones go, it know. goes such a long way and, and it can even buy you some time and take some pressure off you just to- It's a just lot to of pressure off, right? Out. And then yeah. the next thing they do in that first couple days is, especially if it's a high velocity environment, is they get rid of the one crummy AE and they bring in two good ones. And the, the mathematical impact of doing that, even by day 90, it's always jaw-droppingly high, right? You always find out that one terrible AE the CEO didn't realize was so bad was just destroying yeah. deals, was saying the dumbest thing in the world. The or removing some cancer thing. from the team too. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that that's sometimes, at least for me, you know, coming in sometimes as a first time, like sometimes it's just as easy as removing someone from the team. That's enough. That, yeah, just concentrate leads and the better people. Yeah. Just concentrate leads. That, it's, that yeah. sounds so simple, but the folks that haven't, this is why a double stretch VP is so dangerous. Like hiring the great AE to be your VP that's never done any of it. They don't get it. They don't get, you know what the double stretch does? They're worried about losing that person because they, they think they need coverage. Yeah. They're worried about yeah. losing that person that doesn't perform because they, 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 then they're down a man. Right? No, no, no. Someone that's experienced realized if I got those 20 opportunities, instead of distributing them to four people, one of them's terrible. Let me just, Distribute them to three, <laughs> the three better ones. It that alone can difference. give you a 20% revenue lift, right? Just think about the math. And right? trust the me, they'll find time to us. run those demos. Yeah, it just of destroys it. And so this is another reason the double stretch, I just, every time a, a founder proposes that, like the, I will give you the one, the double stretch again is someone who, who's never hired any successful people, never been a successful leader at any stage. I think if you can hire two great AEs, you can eventually hire 200 if you're aggressive yeah. and want it. Yeah. But if you've hired zero, the one exception I will say, and this is so true, is sometimes, and you've worked in the SMB world, sometimes if there's if the velocity in SMB is so high, like it's all one call close, yep. there's yep. more time to for, for, an, uh, for a double stretch to learn the playbook. Sometimes I find in high velocity sales, just a great AE can rise to VP of sales. That's because they get a whole extra year to learn on the job, right? But anything other than the tiniest ACVs with infinity leads there's no time to learn right there's no yeah. time to learn that on the job yeah i, I think it's that's exactly how i was able to move into leadership so quick is we were very transactional at my first very company single platform yeah. we were selling 40 dollar 59 or 49 dollar a month service uh you know we had to close a sale a day for every rep and so you know, when they moved me in to be the head of sales training at the time, there was just a VP of sales, literally overseeing almost a hundred person org with like just flat management. We had no training, nothing. And so I took that over for him. Uh, and to your point, like, you know, I was a first time leader in sales. I had management experience before, but, uh, it worked really well just because the process was so repeatable, right? It was just about cranking it out and training. And I think for coming in as a VP sales at a company like that, it's, 
it's almost just so much more focused on sales training and coaching than it is on like the executive strategic type work where yep. you really need that experience. Cause I think like my skill level as a first time VP of sales compared to when I did it the second time is, is significantly different, right? I it's not it. just, you wouldn't think that's just three years of experience. Like there are so many lessons learned packed into that to get someone who's done it once versus hasn't done it. It's, it's night and day. Yep. And the dangerous one is the ones that think that haven't quite done it and they're just copying something. Well, uh, you know, copying, <laughs> copying. I, something. Uh, I learned that lesson and, and this yeah. proves the, what I just said, you're backing it up, right? I learned that lesson as my first time VP sales. I went to doctor.com. I spent the first six months taking the single platform playbook and rubber stamping it to a different industry and a different product. And I learned pretty quickly uh, that does, doesn't work that way, right? <laughs> and then I had to spend the next few months really relearning a whole new industry and business and starting from scratch with a blank slate. And that was the right way to do it was instead of coming in like the know-it-all uh, and trying to show everyone what I know, when I went to, that's what I did at doctor.com. When I went to air call, I come in and I say, show me everything you know right? That was the mindset with the team is I wanted to learn from them and then try to apply things that I've learned to the business. And it worked out significantly better. You know, it's night, yeah. night and day. The last related point on this, and we can talk about other things you want, but the last related point to all this is, you know, do they have enough experience? Are they double stretched? Can they do it? At, at, here's the, uh, the, la the final mistake so many CEOs make hiring a VP sales, especially um, sometimes other positions, but VP sales, because they're so stressed about scaling revenue, right? They yep. think this is magic. Mm -hmm. You have to really believe. I would say 90% of the VPs of sales that CEOs I've worked with, where they flamed out, right? They flamed out in the first 30 to, to 300 days. Not all of them, but 90%, the CEO loved the spreadsheet they put together. They loved where they worked. They loved the references. They loved, but... But I asked him, did you really believe that he could do it? Like honest, deep down. No, but I don't know. I've never done this before. Like right, everyone, right. no, like it will never work because as a CEO, you have always been the first VP of sales. Even if you were terrible at it, you still did it. Someone got those first 10 customers, those 50 right. customers. Right. So your gut will like, you can't go too much on your gut as a, as a CEO, but it, it's this trigger. And I always see at the end and they always say, you know, I never never really believed in him, but boy, the board loved him and he was a smooth talker and that, 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 you know, he said he knew everybody, but I never believed. And that's don't let it, of course, don't fall in love with logos, right? Don't fall in love with the fact that they worked at Slack or. I love that you preach so that like, so, so much. Yeah. 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 Like the, especially the big co logos, you know, too much, but it I can think, fool you, but sometimes it works, but you have to love them. Yeah. You have to, you have to love them. And, it, and, um, and if you do love them, the reason it also works is first of all, if you don't love them, it's a flag that it doesn't make sense. Like every CEO is smart enough. Okay. Hopefully as CEO, you're not the smartest person in your company or you're doing it wrong. Okay. That's a sign of a bad CEO if they're the smartest person in the company, but you're right. smart enough to know if it, if it doesn't smell right, if it's not, no matter how good their resume is right now, if you do love them, the beauty is every, you know, no VP of anything, especially sales is going to be great at everything. Right. Like, you know, if you're great at high velocity inbound, like when you start, you're not going to be great at big deals and enterprise and outbound or vice versa. Right. But if you believe if you love them, if you love them, you will backfill them. 
you will help them and you will help them lean in where they're good and you will cut them some slack in the areas they don't and you will give them more time and you will even help them recruit a bit and you will backfill them. You backfill people you believe in on your, that report to you, right? And you shrink and hide from the folks that you don't believe in, right? And that backfilling, especially for almost anyone, even if you've done it all before, but especially those who have done it, it's having the CEO not just have your back, but backfill you even quietly. That's the magic. That's the magic, right? But you have to believe, you have to love them or you're not going to backfill them. <laughs> yeah, I guess it, it's the, the judgment probably gets clouded by just the, they probably just want so badly to hand that responsibility off to someone else, right? The, the, the sales, is. right? Because especially if you're not a sales founder, which most SaaS founders are not, right? I don't know the, the percentage, but I, most of them are tech founders, I think. Um, like just... I could imagine like the pressure of doing sales when you don't really, you're not a salesperson, you just probably want to get away from that so fast. And when you finally have the money to hire a VP, it's got to be so tempting to just pull that trigger and, and dump the greatest responsibility, you know, onto somebody it else. Is. And yeah, <clears throat> I guess the, the lessons learned right in the long run of, of rushing that type of stuff. When would you say, you know, we, we talked a lot about, you know, avoiding that first time VP of sales. So from the, so we're talking from the founder the double stretch, not the first time, the double stretch, the double stretch. Right, right. Okay. So you do want to, for most of you, most of us, most startups should hire a first time VP of sales. You should hire a great director or someone that was sort of a VP. That's a stretch because otherwise you're going to hire someone that's washed out. Who else is going to join your the right. eleven thousandth right. two million ARR SaaS startup, right? So a stretch is good. A double stretch, stretch a stretch too far. Someone that skips steps too many got steps, it, it. It especially okay. doesn't work in sales. It especially doesn't work in sales. All right. That's a good distinction. So, so in case anyone missed that, the double stretch is more of an AE who's never managed someone, never hired someone moving into a VP type role. Yeah. And the stretch is, is sort of someone who's maybe done a little bit of hiring. Maybe they've been a sales manager and they're kind of skipping over director or something like that yeah. to be a VP. The AE one, and just, just to push on, I don't ask the question you want to ask, but the, it, in today's world, is the, the number one AE at a hot startup, the number one AE at Aircall in the early days, the number one AE at wherever, they're always going to get a shot at VP of sales. Mm-hmm. If, 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 I, if I look up someone on LinkedIn and, and Colin says this was the number one AE at Aircall in the early days, that person's going to get a VP shot. Now, maybe not the VP at uh, whatever, Notion or the hottest SaaS company, but they're going to get a right. VP right. shot at a funded company because some CEO that likes to bet on Scrappy is going to say, you know who I should bet on? the best AE. Like sometimes you could bet on the very best engineer ever to be your CTO. That actually can sort of work. We could talk about that. Um, it can work in customer success, although it's risky. It never works in sales because they have none of the hiring or management experience. That's the yep. double stretch. Yep. And I just don't, if I had to be binary about one point, when you're tired, when you're desperate to hire that VP of sales, do not hire the best AE somewhere ever. It's such, <laughs> such, such good advice. I will say there's a but. There might be a but to that. Um, and, and, and maybe my career is a little bit weird, but it kind of really worked out to my advantage. I spent four years in corporate retail management and I went through an enormous amount of management and leadership training. And then I got out of that business and I went into SaaS and started as an entry-level salesperson. So here I am now as an AE, but I spent four years managing and leading people. 
Uh, yes. So I understood. But again, you were hyper transactional, right? That's yes. where the and exception really is. Yep. It's hyper transactional because that gives you a little more time yep. to build up those chops, right? And, and exactly. hyper transactional and hyper early. Look, you can hire someone as your fifth employee that has never been a sales leader before. And if they're amazing, they, may, they have time. You get an extra year if you're the fifth employee. That's, yeah. that's where I've seen it work, right? Um, yeah. I saw I saw Gaten at Algolia take them from, you know, $50 in ARR to 50 million, right? At Algolia. And he is great and very thoughtful. And he, but he came out of a biz dev background, but he had, he joined so, he was almost like a co-founder. He joined so early, he had a full year. It was a year before they got to 15K in MR when I invested. Wow. So that extra year, and he made, he's, I love him. I mean, he's great, but he's made plenty of errors. But that year let him take time, find that 1A, really figure out the strategy. But, but as a VP, we never get a year, do we? You have no. to join so early. You have to no. join so early. No, your year is your first 90 days. <laughs> yeah, it's your first 60. Yeah, 60, yeah. 90 days. 60, yeah. 90 days, right? Especially, and I knew this going into air call. I knew in my head, I, I got brought in through a, a recruiting firm. So I know in 90 days, if they keep me, they're paying it, they're writing a check, <laughs> right? So I know that 90 day check in is really important. And so that was top of mind for me. And I actually didn't really consider that I actually had the job until that day. That's, in a, my that's head, a healthy, like, uh, yeah. that, 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 that is rare these days, but it's a healthy attitude. It's the way I thought about it. Cause I knew that they're going to spend, it's a significant amount of money, right? It's a big percentage of your salary or whatever that they're going to have to cut. And they're going to consciously have that on their calendar to make that decision before that, that 90 days. So uh, yeah, I, I think that's important. I want to, I want to ask you now from the, but it's not expensive. Let me just say one thing. I don't mean to yeah, jump around, sure, but please. It's not expensive. Recruiting fees is the look, recruiters seem so expensive in the early days of a startup, they're very stressful. But that if you find someone great, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get this as a CEO for a long time. Um, and but now when I invest, even if it's a relatively small check, like if it's too small, you can't afford a recruiter, right? I mean, it, literally if you have no money, I get it. But right. The when you raise venture capital, especially, you know what the number one reason that money goes in is for hiring. The second yeah. one is hiring, and the third one is hiring, and the fourth one is hiring. So and let's that's say what you they raise here, right? The VCs, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. So if you raise anything more than two million dollars, okay, and you tell your VCs, hey, I want to, you know, we can talk about contingent versus, um, you know, retain search and the issues and bad recruiters. There's so many issues here. There's so many ways you can flush your money down the toilet in recruiting. Don't get me wrong, yeah. but if you spend a hundred grand to get an incredible VP of sales at your company or an incredible VP of demand gen, I gave you $2 million, take 5% of that and make your company better. That's, and, and you know, I also, you know what I tell founders when they're like, I can't afford it. You know what I say? How about 2.1 million? <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, like what will it take sure to can. make you, I'm not saying blow everybody, but like, if you think it's too expensive, I'll give you the extra 50 grand, 30 grand, 100, like it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's the difference between me investing 2 million, 2.1 is irrelevant. Right. So if, right. trust me, I know you're cheap and I know you, you would have failed if you haven't, but, um, um, but it's not, it, it's just something to see on the other side, right. From your point, yeah. I, as a candidate, you feel like it's a lot and it is a lot of money. Right. But you're, you're it's, expected what I meant to by that is it's over so much that they're more. Gonna, I just meant it's enough that they're going to think about, am I keeping this person or not? Right. Yeah, for um, sure. For sure. I, I don't, but I don't think, think, but I don't think, I know you felt that way, but I don't think most CEOs think if they're going to keep that person, they've, Oh my God. It's so, it's such an investment to, and it's so yeah. risky to bring in a VP. No one, I, I never see, I've never seen that across maybe myself so or that 25 investments. In my head. I've never seen a CEO say, I'm going to decide in 90 days if this 
VP is going to work out. I mean, you know how much time went into finding that VP? Usually six yeah. months, 30, 50, a hundred interv interviews. And I find the opposite is the bigger problem is they stick with the candidate when they, when it's clear, when it's clear, it's when bad. it's clear, yeah. that's the danger. And, and the compounding danger of hiring terrible AEs of not, of not believing in the product, right. Of it's, it's, it's not, it's not a, a good VP is okay. I wrote this post like last year showing the math of what a bad VP does. Like the deceleration in your business is tragic, right? Yeah. Keeping a good but not great VP of sales is okay, but a bad one, it's a snowball effect, right? Yeah. All of a sudden yep. you have five terrible AEs instead of one bad one, right? And then when the sales team loses confidence, it's all over, isn't it? You never yep. get it back. That's it. That's you it. never get it back. And I would say this is the number one issue. You have to, you have to smell a CEO. You have to smell it when your VP of sales loses confidence and it may not be their fault. It, it may be your fault. It may, it, it's often the root cause is often their last job was easier. That's mm -hmm. almost always the root cause. Like I, yeah, air call was hard because it was competitive, but that you join something even harder and they fall apart because they had a playbook at air call that even with 10 competitors, it sort of worked. And then they go into this other market where instead of being like, at least having segments of the market where they're number one, they're like number four, right? And they don't know, they don't know the number four playbook or they don't know the 10 X feature, but whatever it is, when fear, when fear sneaks in, you have to, even if you have to get rid of the entire sales team, it's worth it. It's a can't, that's the biggest cancer is fear on a sales team, right? Cause those nine no's for every one. Yes. Yeah. Uh, once you feel it's going to be 10 out of 10, you just hide, right? It's, and it's the same for an AE, right? It's, it's, it's a mindset of a salesperson all the way from, from start to finish. Yeah. That's why How you important. have to. That's why I really think your top couple AEs should make tons of money. Oh, you have to. I wrote yes. this early. Yes. I wrote early, your top AE should be driving an M6 convertible. Then I made it an M8 convertible. Then it was a Tesla because the cars <laughs> were changing. But you need, you need two folks making tons of money on any sales team with more than six or eight folks, two, yes. one or two folks, at least. And do one not the require days. them to make a hundred cold calls a day because they will leave. No. You and just making, and just showing stay. that, yeah, there's something better about how she does it. Uh, but, but crap, holy cow, someone can make 400,000, $500,000 a year. Someone can crush it. Like someone's on Without the end of that, that person. It's very hard to paint that picture. Um, you know, when, when you come in as a VP of sales, or, or, or I will say, if when you're interviewing as a VP of sales, if you find a company you feel good about, maybe you're trying to decide on a company, but you see one of them has that rock star AE who's earning money hand over fist, the other doesn't, I would go probably with the one who, who does if, if all things are equal, because yeah. that's going to make your job a thousand times easier. Keep her and find three more like her and you'll hit the plan for the year. Yeah, It's that simple, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Uh, because then half the training and strategy is all figured out, right? You just need to replicate what this person's doing. One, yeah. one other, one related point though, I wrote about this recently. I have never really talked about it. It took me a while to figure out though, which is that yes, if you're a VP of sales and you want to do something early, but not too early, find one where one A is crushing it, right? That's, that's, that's yeah. the cheat sheet. That's the cheat, yeah. right? Um, it's funny, the other the things I bring up probably came from a post I read from you years ago. Could be. <laughs> You're like, I wrote this that, one time, I wrote this one. <laughs> Although that I wrote recently, it took me a while to figure it out, even though I went through it with Brendan, who you know, which is why would a great VP of sales join a struggling SaaS company? Now today, it was hard enough back in the day, but today with 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 SaaS companies, every VP of sales candidate I know if nothing else, I can get a ton of interviews, right? Because yes. there's just so many SaaS companies. It, it's not that it's easy for either side. It's not easy, but the, there's so many interviews. Like you, you the can fill your there. plate. Yeah. So why yeah. would you ever join one that's struggling? And so what I find is 
you know, almost every SaaS company goes through, I wrote a year of hell a while ago, or they go through a, they go through a phase transition or a deceleration and the CEOs give up. They hide and they're like, you know what? I've got to suck it up and I cannot hire a VP of sales until I hit hundred percent growth again or whatever it is. And I've learned that's a tragic error. And what I've learned is that this is just a, a tip, but it, it took me a while. Like, it helps to have an advocate. It helps to have, uh, you know, a Jason Lemkin or a Colin saying on social media, everywhere, this is a great company. Then someone will take that extra look. Okay. This, you need, yeah. you need, you need a little bit of a boost, but just like the best VP of sales know, if there's one AE that's crushing it, they can create three or at least three or four. The other thing the best AEs know, the best VP of sales know is if there's a brand out there, if I've heard of this product and the customers are happy and there's leads and the team was terrible, that could be a gift. That's the best start. That's yeah, the best, that's the best one because yeah. I'm a friggin' yeah. that's how you crush it in the first 90 days is yeah. when the leads are there and the NRR is high and the MPS is high. And there's a mini brand. People have heard about it. People love this company, but the team was just terrible. It happens more often than you can think. Yep. yep. And uh, not every VP of sales will get it. Not the check the box person that just came out of a hot company. They won't get it. But the intellectual ones will say, let me show. I know you've heard of me. That's good. And look, we had a terrible year last year. But our leads tripled, and and our and everything else. Like an intellectual VP of sales will take that meeting because they'll yep. realize, man, this is this is a good fit for my skill set. <laughs> yeah, the key the key man is, to, is when you're shopping for that VP job, just get an honest overview from people in the company of of what are the biggest problems that need to be solved in the next six months, and what are the things that are going so well that you don't even need to change them. And with yep. those two lists, you should be able to figure out. You should be able to narrow it on the list a lot, right? There's obviously yes. other factors and stuff, but, uh, but, but there's a lot there. And I, I was going to ask you too, I, I know we're running up on time, but we've got a couple of questions I wanted to ask. One, how important do you think it is to, to sort of the pairing of the VP with the actual product, the industry, what they're selling and the personality or experience of the VP? How important is that matchup there versus everything else we talked about? Yeah, I've, I used to think about it this a lot when I started investing in developer-centric products and APIs. Could a B2B sales leader handle talking to a CTO, selling to a CTO or VP of engineering? Uh, I just went from Aircall to Dasha, which is a developer platform. It. Yeah, And it's yeah. certainly true that a lot of VP of sales don't want to do that. They want to work in a, in a very certain environment, and they should stick in that. Like They'll self-select yeah. out, okay? So for sure. So some folks should stick to, to domains that they're comfortable in, especially sales is hard enough as it is, selling a product you don't understand is a mistake. <laughs> yes. Yeah. We can, we can concede yeah. that. Well, but, that's why um, I asked actually, because the thought came up in my head before when we were talking about when you were giving the example of, of coming in and going through the pipeline and finding those, those deals where you can help really quickly. Because if the product is so new to you and the industry is so new to you, you actually can't really do that in the first 30 or 60 days. Like it's really hard at least because you run the risk of getting on the call and having no idea what you're talking about. You might be more likely to actually yes. blow the sale if but, it's a very technical sale, but, right? But what I've found is two things. First of all, ACV controls everything else. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, every 20K deal is sold the same way. Every 50K deal is sold the same way. Every $1 million deal is sold the same way. Yep. So if you're very good, like that's why it's like you have to believe in them, right? They have to have hired a couple great reps and then yep. don't take ACV risk. Um, you can do it. And then if, if the ACV is on point, like if, if it's a new category, it's a new space, it's confusing, but the, the VP of sales has sold your price point. If they, in a couple hours of Google research can understand it enough, then it's okay. Then you'll get them there. You'll get them there. Yeah. 
if yeah. a couple hours they don't get it, they, they don't get the value prop, then it's, it's you're done. Like it's, it's okay for both sides. So this is not as big an issue as it sounds. Um, even if they, they, if they can learn enough about the space in two hours to sell you on it. Right. And this, and, you know, the sell me the pen test does kind of work as long as you do it the right way and it's not cheesy, right? If they can sell you that pen after a couple hours of work and the ACV is sort of similar, they will figure out all the rest. They will figure out all the rest. When you say don't make an, don't take an ACV risk, do you, what do you mean by that exactly? Look, if you're sell, like if, if this is the best VP of sales you ever met, but she's mm-hmm. been selling $500 a month deals, ah. don't bring her in to sell a million dollar deals or 50K deals. I know you think right, it's the right. best person you've ever met. And, <laughs> The other side works too. If they've sold bigger deals, they will melt in a transactional environment. They will have, you know, big yes. deals know how to like get a list of named accounts, get the team together, do the outbound. But when they have a thousand leads a week to process or a day, they have no idea what they're doing and they don't take it seriously. And they hire mediocre people and they look down on the small deal sizes and it all falls apart, right? That yeah. that small business yeah. just falls, segment falls apart. So the, the experience is derived at an ACV at a, at a type of deal size, not in an industry. Got it. Yeah. That's that makes, that makes total make, sense. Yeah. Right. Anyone with a brain can figure out most industries, at least at a sales level. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't sure. Then I started in the early days, I started talking to a lot of folks that had gone to GitHub when GitHub was exploding. I'm like, how can you learn how to sell, uh, you know, a repo service? They're like, it's 10 questions. <laughs> Now we do need, we do want smarter, you know, we don't want dumb people. Okay. But it's 10, it's 10 questions. Yeah. It's like selling Slack. Like, Hey, I, my storage just ran out. I need more apps. I need to sign up. Can you yeah. tell me how to do it? Yeah. It helps to have SEs and it helps to have solution architects. Um, but, um, but, uh, you don't need to be technical to sell a technical product after it has a brand after it, after it's at a couple million in revenue, right before that it's different. Got it. All right. Do a quick sort of rapid fire wrap up. You just kind of hit on a point that, that I think is important to talk about. We, we talked a bit about when to hire the VP marketing, do it first, right? When to hire the VP sales, when to do this, when, cause you just talked about sales engineers, which is, is a thing that I don't think a lot of organizations necessarily know how to do the right way. Yes. When would you say a, that you need sales engineers, like which, which type of company or product and then when do you actually start to add them into the, into the org? Yep. And, and look, look, we can talk about sales engineers versus solution architects and who's more technical or whatever. The simple answer is, um, do you already have one? And what I mean is, is the CEO have to come into deals to talk about some technical side? Does the CTO, does the VP of engineer, do you drag an engineer? You have to drag an engineer. Even if you don't drag an engineer into the deal, do you have to go and ask a couple questions to someone Yep. on the rest of the team to close the deal. If the answer is yes, you need a sales engineer or a great solution answer. architect on the sales yeah. team. You, in fact, nice it would be great simple. to have one today Yeah, because you're wasting your fucking time and what you're is- wasting your CTO's time answering that question when that, when that solution architect can do it just as well. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so that's the case with my client right now, right? I have one AE uh, and the CEO is the, is the, uh, the so SE, one-to-one right? it's okay. But so, you know, right. a, classic, know a, a classic ratio and a lot of, more technical companies, or even at Salesforce back in the day, is sort of one for every eight, right? You'd have a you'd have someone attached to a pod, right? Yep. Um, and that that's a tax. It has a cost, and it has to be. It's like it has to be built into the cost of sales. But but that one for eight ratio is a rough number to think about. But if you have money, I would love to have it at a four because those first two AEs are so different than three through two hundred. After the first two, you have to be able to hire a more diverse type of AE, not just those crazy ones that can figure out how to sell your product. And yeah. so even if the first two can be their own SE 
and their own VP of marketing and generate their own collateral and make their own looms. Like three through 300 can't. So I would love in a perfect world to have a solution architect by rep three. It's great advice. Um, what do you look for in an SE or solution architect candidate? Like what's the profile for that? I think that today it's, it's, it's like CS. It's much easier than it was a few years back. Um, hire someone that's done it for a year or two somewhere and that loves your product. Here's a, here's a case like where loving your product is even more critical is that first solution architect or SE. They have to love your yes, product. Yes. They have to love it. They have to love it. And so the SE will be able to answer. And they have to, and it, it helps if they're like an ex-engineer or or something like that, or an ex-product lead. That's what I was going to ask, yeah. Like X, they don't have to be, usually some of the best solution architects and SEs are, are washed out engineers or product people that like everyone loved them, but they weren't the brilliant engineer, but they can be yeah. a brilliant advisor on how to work with a product. So that's why the simplest thing is just hire someone that held this role at another B2B company. Um, you can hack it. I guess you could turn an engineer into it, but they're the best. And then um, just if they love it, if they love it and the team loves her, it's enough. It's enough. It's like the first CS hire. They don't have to have the perfect skill set. They have to have some CS experience uh, at your deal size and just love your product. And the customer, it will be infectious with the product, that first CSM, right? But they have to be smart. Such, it's such good advice. I never thought about that, but but it's it's so true for any new role, I'd say, in a company that like the level of enthusiasm it 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 just trickles down right as that yeah. as that team scales and you probably never top the the first one right no and the and the interesting insight is because of that your first cs hire or your first solution architect they can be from a radically different industry you could hire someone from healthcare or even biotech or semiconductors i've seen it work okay it doesn't work for other roles okay but look yeah, if you get it if you if you if you did a solution architect in a very different industry but you get it. You know how an API works. You've used the product. You've already spent hours using it and you fucking love this product. Um, you'll succeed that first couple this because there is a generalist element for the first CS and first SC or solution architect that that's okay, right? High IQ and a generalist with some experience and passion, that's enough. So you can have a more, uh, a more unusual background sometimes in these hires and still succeed. It's good stuff. Uh, I guess last question on that topic, who should they report to? Do they report to sales? Do they report to engineering? The solution architect, this SE type person? Yeah, yeah. You know, um, it's a nuanced question, but the truth is when you're small, the real answer is who's best at managing them. Um, I usually find that most VPs of sales do not want to manage the sales engineer or solution architect. Yep. Uh, they, they, the, in the early days, most VPs of sales just want to be VP of closing. Okay. They don't want to, they don't want to manage anything. They don't want to manage customer success. They don't want to manage post sales. Usually there are differences, but closers want to close. They want to close and they want, they want the assistance they need, right? They want CS and solution. They want all the help and they want it when they snap their fingers or hit the slack, but they don't want to deal with the headaches of managing yeah. or dealing with this role. Yeah. So these types of all these sort of customer support roles, um, prospect support roles, sales support, um, and solution engineering, sales engineering. The honest answer there is, is who's the best? Is it the CEO, the CTO? Sometimes it could be the VP of sales as a distraction, um, but it's 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 more less ideal than just who, who could it be? <laughs> Got it. Yeah, and that's the case, I guess, in, in startups a lot, right? It's just people ask that question, who should SDRs report to? Who should this and, and that? And everyone's got opinions, but I think your answer really kind of applies to everything. It's just who's the best 
person to do it right now. And yeah. we could change it later if we need to, right? That's why sometimes with SDRs, it's better for them to report to marketing in the beginning. Because sometimes if you hire a seasoned VP of demand gen, they've managed a BDR team or SDR themselves. And if your VP right. of sales has just been a closer, they may not be ready to handle out. They may, they want, they may just want to be a client of outbound. So even if the, in theory they could do a better job, just house them in marketing. If yeah. they have that experience, right? So if I they always have that experience, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, I don't think it's mandatory for a VP of demand gen to have managed SDRs, but when they have, it can give you an extra little organizational weapon in the early days. Yeah, take advantage of it. See, see who's got the strengths to manage a team and and, and just go with it. Um, all right, last question for you, and and then if you have anything else you want to add, we'll we'll throw it in. Um, what, if anything, what has changed for VP sales in this new remote environment? Do, do you think, uh, it's epic. Yeah. I figured it you'd took have me a while to figure it out. It, it's okay. epic. I'm excited for this. Cause what a year of sheltering of pretending to shelter in place, but being, <laughs> but being distributed has changed and it took months for this to change is that a San Francisco style VP of sales that used to only want to work next to Jeff Lawson. They used to only want to work to Super Bowl in the office, in the same office. And so that usually meant 80% of the time that meant San Francisco, right? Because that's 80% of our, they will work for a CEO based anywhere today. That's the difference. It took months for that to happen. Even when we were sheltering, the top VP still wanted to work. They wanted to be in the same geo as the CEO, even if they weren't, couldn't work together, right? But that faded sometime in the fall, and it took a while. Yes, it took a while to fade. Okay, that's why I didn't take a VP sales job. I was in that phase of like we yeah. were not ready to make that commitment yet. It's yeah. too scary. Like I get so much benefit with that back and forth with my CEO every day, and it and it changed. And this is so disruptive for SaaS companies not based in the Bay Area, especially even I'm still going to call New York and Utah secondary markets because you know, for talent, it is a secondary market, right? Atlanta, right? It's not a tertiary market, but when 80% of SaaS companies still are born and bred in the Bay Area and the new generation, it's true. The snowflakes and the others, they're all in the Bay Area. They, they, they're birthing new generations of leaders that you want to hire. And they're still in the Bay Area. Actually, even though they may be working in Miami today, they're still going to come back, but they will now work for a startup based in wherever, Right, based in Texas, based in Austin, based in France. Like this is a, it's not easy, but they're willing to work for international startups in ways they would never, never do before. Right, like you're doing. I'm right? doing it right never. now. Never. Yeah. Never. And so the contingency was they're taking meetings at 9 p.m. their time. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> but, it's it's, it's but a compromise. It but yeah. so if you're not based in the Bay Area, and especially if you're based in Europe, and you're not taking advantages, you're intimidated. You're 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 failing your company and your team. You can hire Bay Area VPs now based anywhere in the world. And this is more transformational than anything else that I've seen in, in, in SaaS management in my career is that they will work that, that, you know, that's why you came to the Bay Area, right? At the end of the day, it was to hire that, those two VPs yeah. that you couldn't get anywhere else and you still can't get them anywhere else. Plenty of exceptions, okay? But you still, but now the ones, because they'll work for you somewhere else, it just changes everything in your management team, right? SaaS companies I work with, we just hired a great person in Texas for a, for a Berkeley-based SaaS company. Never would have gotten him before, right? right. We're doing right. another one based in New Hampshire. We're doing it. It's all over the place. And it's just disruptive. It's just disruptive. And we're not going to, we're all going to go back to field sales and we're all going to go back to flying to meet our top customers because it works because meeting with people works, right? Well, that's what I was going to ask. So interesting. But sales, so you think but this goes part back. isn't going to change. This distributed ah. sales 
it, we've gotten you, it's been a year and the best sales leaders I know the best, they like it better. They like running distributed. They hated it in the beginning because they yep. wanted to be on a floor. All the sales leaders I know have adapted and they've seen the benefit. They, they, they've realized that for recruiting and team management, the, and, and, and also it, it creates more accountability. You can't hide by just talking at the water cooler. It's actually harder in sales now because you have to hit your numbers even more. You have yeah. daily accountability instead of yep. quarterly or monthly accountability. So sales sales leaders love everything about this, uh, except you know the interpersonal piece. And they're not going back. They are not going back to renting massive floors in San Francisco full of entitled, overpaid SDRs and AEs with six months of experience. They're they're not going back. They're, no one's going back to it. No one is going back. Even though we're going back to the office, we are not going back to the sales pit. It's not going to happen. So we're going back to the office, meaning. The company will have an office. There'll be certain people who go to work in the office. Yes. But you think the sales team remains distributed? I think the key for everything is when we go back, are you distributed first or not? If you're not distributed first, it all falls apart anyway. So the question is, engineering teams have already decided they're permanently distributed first. They've already changed. We never thought this would happen with sales, right? It, it, it's such a, a person right. business. Yeah. They, sales leaders, all the top sales leaders I know have committed that when it, however we go back, it's distributed first. That means everyone's equal. That means Zoom first. That means no informal meetings. That means agendas. That means daily scrums. That means daily catch-ups. It means stand-ups. It means everything happens first online and second in person so that people aren't second-class citizens. And so... Um, there may be multiple offices. I actually think real estate costs for startups will go up after this because we will all need more offices as part of distributed teams. They're not going to go down. People are foolish. Ah, interesting. It's going to go down. It's going up. But um, no sales leader is going to say, hey, look, you're going to get a leg up because you're an SF because that's bad for them. So, But it's, it's a totally different set of tools and processes. And, it, and it's so much more management. Distributed teams are so much... The laziness that we did when we met together and you just grabbed Colin for an informal meeting... When you walk down to his desk, like that's over. That's Every, such that, a good point. Like I miss it so much, right? And we yeah. all do. The office is so much fun running a sales team. That will but never I also come back. don't miss it. It's also exhausting, right? Yeah. And and going back to to your point, if you still have offices, maybe doing that a couple times a month it could be really fun. Like people will rotate, or people will be in an office a day or two a week. But you're not going to train by osmosis anymore. The classic the classic way a startup trains a sales team was by osmosis. Yep. Sit in the middle of the team. You're going to get one day of training. Um, and listen, just listen to them, right? Just listen to them on the floor. That's dead. But the investment that sales teams have made in onboarding and training and tools and systems, right? It, it, it's, it's, it's incredible now, right? You can actually Song get trained. Critical there. <laughs> and you're a, measured a differently. And you're I can't measured differently. I remember the name of it. There's a tool, maybe you know it. It was called like Stand Up or something. And it, it yeah. was so brilliant, but it was basically like Instagram stories, essentially. Well, there's some like of that, but why slack. do you think Gong is worth 2 billion now? Oh my God. Because Gong, Gong and Chorus before COVID were useful tools. Like we, we love them. Like they're yep. great. Right. But, but if you're going to manage a, a distributed team, like it's no longer it's an auditing must. tool. It's, it's required. It's a must. It's a must. How else are you going to, you can't smell yeah. the issues. You can't, you can't sniff them. You can't see them out of the corner of your eyes. I know. You have to be gonging and chorusing. Yeah. You have to, right? I just had this conversation with my client yesterday because I'm doing call reviews now. We're at that phase, you know, where we've built out the script and stuff and I'm writing notes in Google Docs. I'm like, this is a disaster. Like we, we just have to get, uh, we need disaster. We need gong. Yeah. yeah. Why do you think that they And that's exploded? with one AE, by the way. Imagine what that's like with a team of 10. 
Yeah, I didn't. I did not appreciate the power of those tools in the beginning. Although I knew they were necessary, right? But co- this distributed team, they didn't know. I mean, Goncourt didn't know either, right? Well, it, they were it turned extremely it from great to mandatory nice to, to mandatory. Yeah. yeah, very expensive, right? right a lot of complexity. Right. Yeah. The sales stack became very expensive, right? There's a lot of sensitivity around cost in just sales a few stack. years. Yeah, but um, but. But now the ones that you need for just, I mean, we're just never, we're never, we're never going back. Right. But the, but now you can truly hire a sales team, at least across the entire world. And, you know, you don't have to like, oh my God, spend all the money to open that Phoenix office and hope you can do recruiting. You you may still have it, but it just changes the game for great sales leaders. It just changes the game. Right. Let me ask you this. If I'm a, you know, let's say I was in San Francisco, I was a big San Francisco VP sales, you know, top of the market kind of, kind of guy. Uh, and then I leave San Francisco, go live somewhere less expensive. Am I still getting that San Francisco OTE when I get hired remotely? Yeah, it's Can a good. Ask it's, for that? There's, I don't. We don't yet know the answer. There's a lot of debate on it. Yeah. Um, I think though, having worked in the past in companies that had salary adjustments for geographies, and the fact that the inflation in sales in the Bay Area the last four years has been astronomical. Mm-hmm. Astrono- astronomical, the OTs and the expectations. There will be, there is going to be some type of deflation. And whether you see it in OTs or whether you see it in real attainment is a different question, right? Um, but the, the problem was not only did the OTs grow 30% in San Francisco in the last 24 months before COVID, but the expectation, the entitled expectations group, right? Mm-hmm. An AE coming one year out of college to a, to a super hot unicorn might expect they would be making 120, 140,000 a year out of college. And getting promoted and, in nine months. Yeah. And <laughs> the, 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 the thing is that um, now that we can measure performance daily through as part of distributed teams, like we'll know if the emperor has clothes or not. And so the best ones should make even more and more quickly, but those mediocre AEs that are making lots of money, they should be scared. Um, the media, the ones that don't really understand the product, the ones that are lazy, the ones that skated by because the hot startup had to hire hundred AEs this year in San Francisco. Ultimately someone that wants this in Idaho or Florida or, or, you know, Oklahoma is going to steal their job. Their job is going to be stolen by someone that actually wants the job. Right. It doesn't hop every six months to a higher OT without ever accomplishing anything. And, and that is subtly happening now. Um, but, um, and I think because of that, there will be different types of deflation, um, but we may not see it, right? It may be slow, right? It may be slow, right? Um, it may be a reversion to the mean, but yes, I think mediocre sales folks are going to make less money after this. Interesting prediction. Um, I've kind of thought that the the VPs might be able to still demand that that bigger salary. I guess it just comes down to supply and demand is sort of what it is, right? VP candidate salaries are so all over the place because you know the average SaaS company raises three hundred seventy million before the IPO. So if you hit it right. You know, uh, there are plenty of VP sales now that 10 years ago would have asked for a 300K AT. They're asking for a million, 900,000 to a million. It's pretty common today. Wow. But you can laugh. Yeah. But you know what you have to deliver? That company needs to go from 10 to 50 in a year, Colin. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're like, out of it. It used to be doubling was great. And doubling is enough. We can do the math, right? But the best SaaS companies can go from 10 to 40 in a year. 
So when you take that 900 KOTE, congratulations. But you know what? You know you have to do 30 million in bookings this year, and you have you don't you don't get a year. You get a we get an hour in, in the, at about a growth, right? So don't. We're, we're, what I see happening more and more is. Um, I especially see it in social groups where folks are sharing a lot of their comp is a lot of VPs that haven't earned it go in with insane expectations for OT and equity. And they, they either blow, don't get the job and they don't really understand why um, because they asked for the moon or they do get in a lot of trouble because the other thing I've seen is when they, when they, when that, okay, look, the CEO doesn't feel good about it, but then they raise a $10 million round and they like, they give up. Okay, look, Colin wants six hundred thousand OTE. He's a two fifty guy, but like, I'm I just raised ten million. I, I, I but remember that 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 salary vest too in the OTE vest, right? Six hundred thousand OTE. Let's say it's a 50-50 split. Your first month, you're only making what fifteen grand. Yeah, like I can take a risk and get rid of you in three weeks. And so we talked in the beginning of this conversation about you feeling under the gun for ninety days for recruiter fee. That's not the way it works. It's the massive OTE. It's pushing pushing too many VPs of sales push too hard. And when you do, you'll get it in this market, but no one forgets. No one the for, leash when you, gets shorter and shorter. Oh, it's not get. just that. When you ask for the high end of normal, if your CEO loves you, like we talked about, you'll get it. Okay. If the CEO loves you. When you push beyond normal, in the old days, you wouldn't get it. Today, you'll get it, but it will never be forgotten. It will right, not, right. there will not be one day for your whole career. Now, listen, if you build up the next snowflake, they'll laugh about it. But it will, you know what? You'll be, it'll, you'll be laughing about it in ten years because it'll be never. You, do you want that mark on your back? I actually think most VPs of sales don't want the mark on their back. They don't want to walk in with a target on their back. And so when you look on this on these online groups and they all tell you to ask for the most and ask for seven percent equity with a single trigger and all these and the ten million thing, they come and they all come with the same checklist they got on a certain online group. We, we won't name it. You, I will tell you this: you you walk in the door with a target on your back. So leave some at least leave something on the table. And, and all things. And, and you don't, I don't think you want that. I don't think you want a target on your back. So be careful. Yeah. It's, it's, I'll give the same advice there to VPs that I give to experienced AEs. Spend less time pushing for, for that big OTE, spend more focus on coming in and crushing your first year and then ask for more. It's a lot easier. Yes. The more. problem is, and I agree with you. The problem is that that is the right way to win. But it requires a lot of trust and a lot of confidence. And there's too many VPs of sales out there complaining about the terrible deal they got, how they got screwed over by this company. There's too much scar tissue. We all have, I have scar tissue. Yeah. You have scar tissue. Yeah. yeah. There's too much scar tissue that people don't take that advice anymore in 2021. That's a they, they just don't valid take it. Point. Yeah. Everyone's I, telling I, them how I, they got, how I give that every advice, day got screwed over. Yeah. What's that? I said, yeah. I give that advice, but could I take it? Like you say that, you make me think that it, it's true. Like, especially when you have the battle scars, like, it's tough. It's these are tough. the these are the most intense relationships you'll ever get involved in in your life as a VP to a CEO. Uh, it's, it's it's there's more expectations. There's more pressure than than any personal relationship you ever get into in in, in your life. Uh, yes, and it's just uh, yeah. There's a lot of trust issues there. And, trust issues. Yeah, and it's, it's not just. Like I guess a lot. If I had to you, summarize it, I would say because I've I've been I've been watching much more intense VP of sales comp negotiations last year than ever before. My advice it's true in, in any in, in, if you have to work together. This this happens in M and A too. Like you can push back twice. If I offered you, Colin, if I offered you two fifty KOT and, and and half a percent of the company to join me, you can say no. I want this. Okay, and and then I'll give you something, and then you can say again. Look, thank you, Jason, but I really want this. You can do it twice. Right, but that right. third time, 
there's also a target on your back. Like it's, it's too much. You're too high maintenance, right? So just be thoughtful about the third negotiation around VP level comp. It may be better to quietly disengage. What do you think about, I ask you once, I ask you twice, and then I come back and I say, all right, hey, maybe maybe there's a best of both worlds here. What about you bring me on at, at the 250 or whatever the offer is? And we negotiate today some milestones, right? And so if I hit X in X number of months for you, I get whatever increase, whatever increase. And so in other words, it's sort of what I suggested before. Well, any good CEO will take that deal. They, any good CEO will take that deal? Any good CEO will yeah. take that deal. Yeah, those are Any the best good deals. CEO will take a deal where you bet on yourself and it aligns your interest. In fact, you can get a better deal if you're willing to, to trust her, trust them and do it. If you, if, you, if, you're, if you have a step function where the first one is close to where they're, not just what they ask for, but their comfort level, the CEO's comfort level. And then you have a step up that's your comfort level and you agree on why the step up happens. It's not time-based, it's performance-based. Mm-hmm. Any great CEO that has money in the bank is gonna give that. They're gonna give that to you. They're gonna give it to you. And in fact, they're gonna agree to it almost instantly. It's the best way, I think, to come in and, and position yourself for a lot of money, whether it's as an experienced AE or VP or director or whatever, come in and, and get a decent fair market value, but negotiate some milestones and then go crush it. It is. And then you get what you wanted. Because the, the alternate to that is you push and push and push and get the money up front, but then you may not keep your job anyway because you may not deliver. Yes. And then in hindsight, you would have rather have the, the smaller salary and still have some more time. Right. That's why I think those milestones are, are, are really the answer to to that problem. Yeah. I mean, listen, you can get feel like you get screwed. There's risk in these scenarios, but there's risk anyway. Right. Um, Always. The, 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 what people don't get, if you're willing to do that step function, right, prove yourself and then then get that bigger comp. The truth is, here's why here's why it's clever from a negotiation perspective is um, you start you stay in the comfort zone which makes it very, which, which is the nice place to start. The truth is anything that's contingent like that gets fully budgeted. Okay. If you and I agree on a 225 OT, but you get 450 when you hit your plan, quietly, I've budgeted for 450. Okay. Now there could be friction about when that date happens. People don't like that. We may disagree. If the, what if the milestones 80% hit? Like there's a lot of dramas around that, right? I think it should be very clearly negotiated, right? Like, like, yeah, yeah. But the, but the trick that people don't get is they think it's not budgeted. So you're already saying, look, if this works out, you're a 450 guy. Okay. If it works out. And so you've been quietly budgeted. And so if you're going long and you're, it works to your advantage, because even if there's some friction, that your, your target OT has been budgeted. <laughs> and so you don't have to figure it out later, right? You yeah. don't have to convince yeah. a company that only budgeted less. It's been budgeted, right? And we all know right. that have been doing selling that being budgeted is magical, right? It, it makes all the difference because <laughs> the alternative is that you're spending that first year just paranoid and thinking about that future negotiation. You get it out of the yes. way up front. It's like a prenup in, in a way, right? Like you're just getting the the dirty talk out of the way so that, you know, you can just focus on executing and your CEO doesn't have to worry because they're protected, right? Because these yes. are milestone increases. Yeah. It's true. Um, Jason, before we, before we depart here, what's going on at Saster, man? I mean, this must've been an insane year for you, right? A huge events-based business, um, you know, moving to remote. I, you had one planned. I remember you're like, just, I probably sit in fingers crossed, like trying to, trying to make it happen. It was um, horrible. Did you guys pivot? Yeah, I we were the really first big tech much. event. We were the first big tech event that got hit by COVID, right? That yeah, had to cancel. Yeah. We lost $10 million. We lost $10 million. We lost $10 million. $10 million. Wow. 
10 million. <sighs> you would have never thought to have insurance on that, right? You know, it's funny. Yeah, there is insurance. It, we, it turns out it's hard to get. And a lot of folks are suing their insurance agencies that do have it. Right. So, uh, but yes. Um, it was so it, it was unforeseen. Um, I think the... You know, a lot of a, f- a lot of fun lessons out of it. Um, sure, it was it was tough. Um, what first? What I realized looking back of my career is about every four to five years, there's a black swan event. Um, and so now I've been doing this long enough. I plan for one. Like you know, yeah. people will talk about 2008, 2000. Like no one foresaw the depth of the crash in 09. No one even foresaw the flash SAS crash of 2015. No one foresaw COVID. But when you add these all up, you see they happen about every four to five it's years. Clockwork. And in fact, yeah. I sent my, my, you know, really my co-founder of SAS, Amelia, who runs most of the things, I sent her this email in January. And I said, COVID's going to be our black swan event in January. I, I, as soon as the CDC first said it might be a big deal, I said, I can show you this email. I said, this is this. This happens every four to five years. This is this is ours, and You're no one quite got it. it. But I already knew because I knew the playbook, right? Oh, so we already we, there was only so much we could do. We had, yeah. you know, fifteen million dollars committed, but we already I had already I put the things in motion to see. I didn't think we would get shut down. I do. I did think it would be. You know, that's why if you looked early, like we were written up in the Wall Street Journal, people made fun of us for saying we had to have social distancing and washing our hands and wearing masks because no one was doing this. But I knew in right. January. Like I have to do everything to make this happen. This black well, and you hung event, on right? for a while too, right? I think because we did everything. We did. Yeah. No one else did anything. We did everything. Yeah, everyone um, else was canceled. You guys really, really pushed to try to make it happen. To the last minute. Um, <laughs> yeah, the I Warriors remember. still played for another week, but we, but we went down. But so the black as a CEO plan for a black swan event every four to five years, and when you smell one coming, do something about it. Right. Right. Yeah. Do something about it, and then. That's the real lesson for everybody. I mean, if you're curious for us, you know, then we went through what a lot of folks went through is we have a tiny team, but we're at scale, right? It's weird. We have a small amount of people doing something massive and about half our team left afterwards. They just decided the new world was not the place for them, right? And you'll see that happen in companies, right? And it kind of sucked, but we got stronger out of that, right? And, you know, we'll probably, you know, and then I can briefly touch on the investing side and we'll run out of time, but we'll probably do 20 million this year at the end. So we came out of it, but you know, it was terrible. We lost 10 million. We had four months with no revenue. I had a large payroll. Everyone makes a lot of money at Saster. We pay people what really well. What did you guys well. do last year? Uh, I think we did 12 or 13. Oh, so it's, you're growing. That's, that's well, not this like year a, will be a yeah. mess, but next year will be 20. Yeah, oh. it'll be 20. Yeah. So, awesome, and we tilted, you know, we tilted and like we'd never done a, a digital event or anything, but we'll do four to 5 million over 12 months in digital events and digital media versus zero the year before. So, you know, the team, you know, the meta lesson there is, look, if you have a few great people, um, you got to be as a leader. Like the team was devastated for 90 days. We had no revenue. People were running around with their heads cut off. Yeah. People were despondent. Scary but, time. but as your CEO, your job is to find things. I'm like, you know what? Let's there's so like cloud is coming back. There's so much money. Field marketers want, want leads. Let's try something. And out of that, we did it our own way. That was very founder centric and non commercial, but we built a four to $5 million business in one year out of it. And so, you know, your best people can't always do it on their own as CEO. You have to find the vision for them, right? We have, you have to prove it out, but then once you have some proof points, just let them fucking go. Right. And they, they, they built it and they, they did something that I think no one else in the industry has done. And then lastly, on investing side, you know, investing was grim for about eight weeks, but oh my God, on the, I mean, now investing like, 
Oof. I mean, uh, you know, I, as an investor, you were ended up being lucky in the last half of the year. I did nothing, right? And my all my investments doubled as a group in the last six months of the year, doing no wow. work. Wow. Cloud got, I mean, cloud, you can just see it in the Slacks and I'd invest in Slack and Zoo, but even the great ones I've invested in, uh, you know, you can, you can, they just, so many of them tripled. They just tripled. Were you, more were you in Zoom pre-COVID? No, I didn't invest, but I'm just saying that's an obvious one, but I'm saying it yeah. happened all across cloud. Like you were at Airco, right. like look at TalkDesk. It went from one to 3 billion almost overnight during COVID. It'll end up being a $10 billion company because of COVID, right? Right. right. Um, Gorgeous and others we talked about, they almost quadrupled their, their valuation during COVID. It happened all yeah. across the board in segments we had our best quarter that ever were benefit. Air call. Yeah. So, so, so investing was weird, which is that, um, you know, if you just invested early enough in SaaS, you, you became a genius at the end, at the back half of 2020. And it, it's, it's just crazy. And whether it's sustainable and whether it really makes sense is a different question. But, um, but for the, for the SaaS drink, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, events and, and parts of tourism and travel there and, 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 and offices, just, these are devastated industries, but, but it's fun. It's fun to come back from it. It's fun. You know, it's fun to, it's fun to triumph over adversity. I mean, it sucks, but, is the, but anyhow, is Black Swan today, event, it's going to happen. They happen like clockwork. <laughs> is the, it's funny that you, you just knew that was coming too. Like, right. As you saw it is, is the plan today to get back to live events? Do you think yeah, that that's, we will, happen? if, if vaccines go as we expect and the county does it, then we will have a SAS annual live in September. Oh, we'll have it mainly so outdoors. It'll be outdoors. It'll be at the San Mateo County Fairgrounds so that no matter even if we're vaccinated, we're all, it'll be like a festival. We'll all be outside for 99% yeah. of it. Um, I think if we, you know, there's, it's, there's a lot to get through between now, but it certainly appears there's a lot of pent up demand. <laughs> Well, you know what? That's why I asked you because I thought that you would have, you know, that you'd have a strong answer one way or the other. And I, I feared that you would say, we're just going to, that it's just going to stay online because I, I hope that those things come back. Right. And, and it's going to take people like you to, to really push, to take the risk to do we're it. We're going to push it. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, we're not going to take any health and safety risk. Again. Right. We were the opposite. You saw us. We were the most safe there was going yeah, into yeah. this. We'll be the most safe, but we will push it. We will take the financial More financial risk. risks and other we, we've already put a lot of money into September and it may not happen. Like we, we it may be safe, but the county or Cal, you know, California, Northern California. I mean, I'm in right now. I'm in Orange County. No one cares here. No one wears a mask and there's no social distancing. But Northern California yeah. is the most conservative in the country, right? So everything may be fine, but Northern California may say we're going to take a pass for the whole year, right? And so we'll lose a million bucks again. But we're investing in it as if it's going to happen. I love that. I'm glad to hear that. And and it is interesting how like. The, the culture around COVID right now is so different in different places. I was in New York, everyone masks, social distance. I come to New Jersey, no one cares no right one here. Cares. Yeah. Yeah. I'm right now, for family reasons, I'm in Orange County and people just line up at the hot spots with an inch between them and no mask at all the hot spots in yeah. Newport Beach. Oh, and once there are a few drinks in at the bar, the masks are off. Forget about nothing, it. Nothing. Nothing. All the people are eating indoors at restaurants, even though it's illegal. I mean, there's yeah. no one. No yeah. one cares, right? No one cares. Well, I think so many people have caught it by now, like myself included. It's weird to even well, say that because I never got really sick, but like I've caught it now. It's like I'm complicated. Kind of I'm only interested in the business side and how it impacts tech because there's too many yeah. complicated issues there. Uh, but we, you could you. imagine where the rest of the country is pretty cool with things in the fall, but the Bay Area is the one exception, right? So well, would we have Sastrania? Would we do something crazy like do it in Florida or Vegas? I, it's too early. But right now we've got the San Mateo County Fairgrounds booked. It'll be outside. Everyone will come. And if we can do it, I think it'll be one of the most fun things we've done since the beginning, right? Because people will be excited. Yeah. Cause it's like just doing it, starting all over again. I love that. Um, all right, real quick, before you go, any hot tools that are out there that are making 
remote onboarding or remote events better that you are aware of? Just so we have a couple tips in there. Because I, I think for remote onboarding, I, I don't even think the technology is started yet. Like I think there's going to be so much that needs to be done to onboard sales teams like remotely. I just think we're- I'm the wrong one to ask. I will just give you two insights and then we can break. One is that um, I think Notion is the the- the, the distributed worker dashboard. So I think Notion is as hot as it is. I think it's undersold. Um, everything at Saster is run on Notion today. Um, and we use all the other tools, but Notion's our bedrock and we're not, we're not going back, right? So um, if, if folks on your team talk about Notion, but you don't get it, you don't see why it's useful. Um, it looks like the 10,000th markup tool. Empower your team because this is a powerful tool that is in some ways the OS of distributed teams as I think Notion is. Um, on, on events, it's just interesting because there's been so much investing. They're all terrible. They're I all terrible. One. Which one did I use? Well, Hopin is the most successful, right? That's what I used. And it yeah. was it had bugs, but I thought it was very impressive just because I had no idea something like that even existed. Hopin is slick, and it, it's very interesting. It, the industry's moved so quickly, right? Hopin went from nothing to $2 billion evaluation in 10 Talk months. Talk about time. All the products right? now have cloned them, and there's now there's basically a Hopin UI. Like Everything looks like Hopin now, Oh, right? really? It's like sales uh, logs all over again? And I like and I like it, the, the, but, um, and, and, but these products, and I think Hopin in particular will be successful because the CEO is so committed, and they have so much capital. But what's going to happen, having done this for years, is none of these, these products are just band-aids for when we can't do real world events, right? They're band-aids and they don't connect to the real world and they don't do the things. I mean, you and I met, how many folks I've met at Sasser events, how many folks I've met on the road, they don't, it doesn't work. Yeah. And so there is, there is artificial demand because we can't meet in the real world and you can't charge $50,000 for a piece of software that doesn't do much more than have uh, some Zoom streaming in it. Okay, so it's there will Zoom be a date of reckoning yeah. coming. But what I do think is, I think folks like Hopin and maybe a few others get it, and there we may have incredible software at the end of next year, like to do things online. Event software has claimed it does collaboration since the dawn of time, and it doesn't. Okay, it's a very expensive way to process tickets and registration. There are no collaboration tools, right? And having one-on-one chat roulette with a random person of 10,000 is not fun, okay? But what could be done with AI, with other things, could be amazing. So I'm very, I'm very negative on where these products are today. We use them all at Saster. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really excited that we're 24, you know, 24 months in the future with hundreds of millions of dollars being invested. Magical things can happen, right? So I'm very excited about 2023 and 2022, for, and I'm very negative on where <laughs> the software is today because we have too much, we have too much, too much riding on it, and nothing really works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you. So it's good to hear that. I think a lot of people in the audience would be comforted to know that uh, at least the biggest, most uh, you know, famous event in our space is going to be coming back and you're going to be able to- I think the big stuff will come back and whether smaller, it's like whether smaller stuff will come back remains to be seen. Whether, will, yeah. will this kill the marginal get together? Probably with distributed teams, it, you know, it's probably going to kill the marginal thing because we're, we're, too many of us are working from home, right? Yeah. I, I think that's often what happens, right? The best stuff can't be killed, but in tough times, the marginal stuff all just sort of fades away, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Well, I, I hope it happens and, and I will be there. It'll be great to, to get out and just finally see people, uh, you know, in person again, business-wise, that just hasn't happened in it will a very be. long time. Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for catching up. This was a lot of fun. Likewise, Jason, any, anything you want to promote, plug, what's going on at Saster? 
No, just you know, just check out our blog once in a while, saster.com. That's all I need to plug. Come by cool. every once in a while. That's all. So, sign up for our newsletter. Okay. Sign up for the right, newsletter, man. saster.com. Follow Jason Lemkin everywhere. He's always putting out good stuff. Quora, I love the Quora stuff. I, I, I hope people, if they're not following Jason on, on Quora, uh, get on there. Um, hey, man, it's been, it's been a good time. I appreciate the talk, and uh, let's stay in touch. All right. Yeah, All right. Do. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Jason. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Colin Cadmus podcast. Please don't forget this episode was brought to you by Lessonly. Check out Lessonly.com. That's L-E-S-S-O-N-L-Y.com. This episode was also brought to you by Spiff. Check out Spiff.com forward slash Colin. Please don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you so much for listening and watching, and I'll see you next time. Ooh.